begin this special hour of the Sunrise Morning Show with a prayer to Mary, Temple of God, written by St. Cyril of Alexandria. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mother and Virgin, eternal temple of the Godhead, venerable treasure of creation, crown of virginity, support of the true faith, on which the Church is founded throughout the world. Mother of God, who contained the infinite God beneath your heart, whom no space can contain, through you the most holy trinity is revealed, adored, and glorified. Demons are conquered, and our fallen nature again assumed into heaven. Through the human race, held captive in the chains of idolatry, arrives the knowledge of truth. What more shall I say of you? Hail, through whom kings rule, through whom the only begotten Son of God has become the star of light to those sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning and welcome to this special edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell, and alongside Matt Swaim, we have some awesome conversations to share with you today, solely devoted to the Blessed Virgin Mary, who was conceived without sin, who became the Theotokos, the Mother of God, who was assumed body and soul into heaven and now reigns as the Queen of heaven and earth and who always points us to her son and serves as the primo intercessor with him for us, her children, here in the church on earth. So. Hope you can sit back for the entire hour ahead to enjoy some wonderful conversations about the Blessed Mother on this, her great feast day. So let's get started right now. It's two minutes past the hour. Matt? I'm Matt Swaim, joined now by Stephanie Mann. You can find her blog full of all kinds of excellent tidbits about English Catholicism. Uh, It's over at supremacyandsurvival.blogspot.com. Good morning, Stephanie. Good morning, Matt. So, we talked about this uh, in regard to the Immaculate Conception uh, with John Henry Newman and where he lived in the history of the church. Uh, For John Henry Newman to be preaching on the Assumption, I mean, he dies at the end of the 19th century. It's a full, what, like 50 years, it was like 60 years until until the dogma of the Assumption is preached proclaimed infallibly by the church so what did he have to say about it long before a half a century before it was actually officially defined he speaks of it as a doctrine in one of the sermons that we've looked at before uh on the the glories of the blessed virgin mary being in line with her great dignity as being the, the fitness of the glories of mary because she's the mother of god he says that he's going to look at her assumption as a point of doctrine not just of devotion, in an 1849 sermon. So he's already speaking of this as though it is a doctrine of the Church, not proclaimed infallibly, of course, or, but just, he, he almost seems to think it's part of the ordinary magisterium in some ways. He says that she, he actually says that she died, but as our, our Lord and Savior died, but that he saved her from that corruption of the tomb because she did not 
earn, she was not under the, the penalty of the corruption of the tomb, which is part of the original sin in the fall, because she was full of grace, and she had found favor with God. And so he even mentioned things like, well, if, if Moses and Elijah were taken up to heaven, then why wouldn't the Blessed Virgin Mary? He starts speaking of this in, in this way, drawing on these analogies, even in 1849. And he continues to do so, especially when he writes meditations for the uh, boys of the oratory school on the litany of Loretto. And he, ta- he gives a whole section to her bodily assumption. It is pretty powerful to read through this, this homily. There, there are a few things that I want to key in on. Sure. Uh, one of them is even in the title of this address, On the Fitness of the Glories of Mary. Now, fitness, as Newman is talking about it, does not refer to like Pilates classes. Right. right. He's, he's <laughs> yes. using it in the way that Thomas Aquinas uses this word fitness. Like, it is yes. fitting that this should happen in this way. Putting together all the other pieces of how this works, from her being preserved from original sin, from the way that God chose his own mother, from the way that she was involved in every other piece of his process of the incarnation through the resurrection, yes. it seems fitting that she should participate in this piece of what it means to be resurrected and ascended as well. Yes, and he she he uses that term so much that he that she instead he says who was not a sinner fitly never saw corruption, and he says that he she died to fulfill I guess you'd say in other words fitly uh, the dead the dead of nature, but that she then was saved from the corruption of the tomb because of, it was fitly fit teen that she would not do so. And so he he goes through that uh, throughout his. In fact, I found uh, in studying Newman on on Mary more intensely than I have before, I found that he is very consistent. Once he realizes that uh, from the uh, it's from his studies of the fathers of the ch- church that Mary is always referred to as the mother of God, and that is so essential that at the Council of Ephesus she was proclaimed the Theotokos, and that the fathers constantly refer to her as the second Eve. He. He continues with those two themes throughout his, well, he kind of started with them, of course, as an Anglican, but particularly as a Catholic. He continues with those two themes as his meditation on Mary in every way, that because of the, those two doctrines, particularly that, therefore, the doctrine of the an Immaculate Conception, which also hadn't been defined uh, when he first joined the Church, but, but in a few years later, and, and the Assumption flow from his understanding of those two doctrines about the, the church which he about Mary which he obtained through his study of the fathers of the church while he was still an Anglican right and this is not new um, obviously as you're mentioning right. he's 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 drawing from a very deep well but what's funny is that some of the arguments that we've used uh, this this feast day of the assumption to to defend the uh, the assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary mm-hmm. are I mean you you find them in this writing from John Henry Newman. This is my favorite one yes. of those because uh, we've used this a couple different times today. But here's how yes. Newman puts it: He says, "From the first to this day, it has been a great feature and characteristic of the Church to be most tender and reverent towards the bodies of the saints. Why then do we hear nothing of the Blessed Virgin's body and its separate relics? Is it conceivable?" that they had, who had been so reverent and careful of the bodies of the saints and martyrs should neglect her, her who was the queen of martyrs and the queen of saints, the very mother of our Lord. I mean, it's that relic, or it's that uh, that argument we, that we use all the time with the assumption. If yeah, Mary, there's no tomb. There's, there's no relics. Nobody says, yeah. I got Mary's 
pinky toe. Nobody says this, right? Because it's yeah. not here. Yes. Yeah, he says that, why is she thus the, the hidden rose? Plainly because that sacred body is in heaven, not on earth. Yeah, it's a powerful thing to reflect upon. And again, uh, Newman is not some dummy. I mean, he is going through not just the sources, but he's he's thinking this through. I, you know, in some ways, it's the, the logic of Newman that really helps make yes. the argument. Yes. In fact, uh, one author who's meditating on, on Newman's uh the way Newman developed these arguments says that he 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 bases them on biblical typology, the fact that the church is the authoritative interpreter of divine revelation on the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and again that word the fittiness of Mary's Mary's assumption in relation to the other mysteries of faith, her role in in our salvation, and I mean her high role. Newman throughout again throughout what I'm reading that that he. Uh, writes about Mary, he constantly comments on the fact that she is not just the mother of Jesus, she's not just a vessel that was randomly chosen, that she was part of God's salvific plan from the beginning. She's there, I mean, she is the woman uh, who will bear the son, who will tread on the snake on, from, from Genesis. She's part of the proto, she's, she's, desti- she's destined to be here in our lives from the proto-evangelicum. So he emphasizes that so much, and this it is, it's magnificent, his, yeah, it his continuity and his development of this. All the way back to Genesis 3. Right? Yes. Uh, back when there was only one woman on the whole planet. <laughs> yes, <laughs> there's, exactly. There's, uh, there's an echo, a shadow of what would come. So, good stuff. Stephanie Mann, I encourage people to go read more of Newman's sermon, Newman in his own words, over at supremacyandsurvival.blogspot.com. Have a great day. You too, thank you. I'm Matt Swaim, and you're listening to the best of a Sunrise Morning Show. We'll be right back. The first annual Dominican Rosary Pilgrimage, sponsored by the Dominican Friars Foundation, will take place on Saturday, September 30th at the Basilica of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C. This all-day event will feature conferences by Father Gregory Pine, resuscitation of the rosary, a fervorino by Father Lawrence Liu, and mass with Father James Brent as homilist. Join us for this day of prayer to Our Lady. For more information, visit rosarypilgrimage.org. That's rosarypilgrimage.org. Are you looking for peace? Longing for joy? Want to meet the giver of all goodness? God is calling the laity to bring Ignatian prayer into the suffering world. Work for the new evangelization. Go to lordteachmetopray.com. Order your free digital training and manual. Find true happiness and everlasting joy. Go to lordteachmetopray.com. And click on the red button today. It's free. Approved by the USCCB. Have you considered energizing your business marketing plan? The Sunrise Morning Show is heard across the U.S. on more than 360 Catholic radio stations, reaching millions of engaged listeners in the heart of the morning commute. You can speak directly to a loyal group of like-minded people who prefer to use businesses who share their faith and values. Find out more about underwriting The Sunrise Morning Show by emailing me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com. That's Leah at sacredheartradio.com. Proclaiming the faith, changing lives. 
The year was 1987. EWTN programming expands to 24 hours, reaching 10 million subscribers. This was implemented to cover the visit of the Holy Father, something not done by any other network, helping the audience have a direct connection even if they couldn't see him in person. To learn more about Mother Angelica's life and the history of EWTN, visit EWTN.com slash Mother Angelica. Back with us now on the Sunrise Morning Show is Father Hezekiah Carnazzo from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Good morning, Father. Good morning, Annie, and happy feast day to you and all your listeners. Thank you, and to you as well. So you and I today are going to be discussing the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. On August 15th, we celebrate the Feast of the Assumption, in which we celebrate when the Mother of God was taken body and soul into heaven. Now, you are a Melkite Greek Catholic priest, an Eastern Rite Catholic priest, not a Roman Catholic so you call this the Feast of the Dormition. Why is that? Well, literally the falling asleep of the Mother of God. You know, we don't talk about Christians dying, Annie. This is not how Christians talk. Christians don't die. Or we should say, we do die, but we died on the day of our baptism, as St. Paul says. We died with Christ. We were buried with Him in the baptismal waters, that we might rise to a new, new life with Him. Therefore, when Christians close their eyes at the end of their, uh, of their bodily life on this earth, we don't call this death. We call it a passing from this life to the next. We close our eyes to this world, and we open them to behold the face of our best friend, who we've been preparing to, to encounter our entire life. So this is a, we call it a falling asleep in the Lord, not death. Okay, now... Many Roman Catholics have learned that Mary did not experience a bodily death. Why do you believe that is wrong? Well, that's just not the ancient tradition of the Church. And um, and while you are a Catholic is is welcome to hold that, um, it's just not what the great theologians have come before us have held. Some people, in an attempt to kind of protect Mary in her in her purity, have tried to claim this. But even Pope John Paul II clarified this issue in his letter, Mary and the Human Drama of Death. He says, It is true that in Revelation, death is presented as a punishment for sin. However, the fact that the Church proclaims Mary free from original sin by a unique divine privilege does not lead to the conclusion that she also received physical immortality. The mother is not superior to the son who underwent death. And, and he goes on. So we believe that Mary did, in fact, die. In theology, it's important. If the liturgy says something, it is what we believe. It's an old, it's an old saying, lex orande, lex credende. In the Byzantine tradition, we talk about Mary being carried, her body being carried down to Gethsemane. And many probably don't know this, that the, the location of Mary's tomb is still known to this day. It is in the Kidron Valley near, uh, near the Garden of Gethsemane. It's why Jesus loved to go, I believe, and pray there, because it is a family tomb. That's where Joseph was buried, it's where Joachim and Anne were buried, and it's where Mary's body was taken after she fell asleep in the Lord on Mount Sion, which is the upper hill of Jerusalem. Her body was carried down to the Kidron Valley, and there laid in the tomb before being assumed into heaven. The idea that she didn't die is, is, is present in the Church Fathers, 
So I don't want to completely reject that possibility, but simply to say that it's not necessary for the sake of piety, devotion to the Mother of God, to protect her purity, to, to claim that she didn't die, because as Pope St. John Paul II says, this is, uh, her son died, so there's nothing, there's nothing to say that she didn't die. And there are uh, strains of the early Church which would claim that she didn't die, that she passed from this life to the next without undergoing bodily death. And as I said, in the Byzantine tradition, it is made explicit in the prayers of the Feast of the Dormition that her body was indeed carried down from Mount Sion to the Kidron Valley, where she was laid to rest, only later to be discovered that her body was gone when Thomas the Apostle uh, um, was not present and asked for the tomb to be opened so she, he could behold her face one last time, and her body was gone, and a sweet fragrance of rose poured out of the tomb where her body was, but of course he looked in and it was empty. Now, Father, these traditions that we have, I mean, the fact that, that we don't know for sure whether she died or not, as you say, you don't want to completely reject the idea that, that she didn't experience bodily death. I mean, all of this comes from the fact that the story or the account of Mary's dormition, her assumption, is not present in the Bible. And Protestants will point to that and say, therefore, it never happened. But is the doctrine of the assumption actually biblical? Well, it actually is biblical, Annie, and this is probably your your listeners are gonna gonna be somewhat surprised at this. We, I think, oftentimes as Catholics, we get in, embarrassed or nervous in front of the the attacks of our Protestant brothers and sisters, and we don't realize that actually the Bible's on our side in every single case. Mm-hmm. Why? Because the the Bible's written by the Church, by the early Christians, by the early Catholics. So we have nothing to fear there. In fact, the Scriptures defend. I must say that very clearly. The Scriptures defend the doctrine of the assumption of the Mother of God. How is that? Well, first of all, in the book of Genesis, our great father among the saints, Enoch, we are told, was taken up into heaven. Your your listeners can look at Genesis chapter 5, verse 21, where it says that Enoch was righteously walked with God, and he was taken. And that uh, what that means is made explicit in St. Paul's epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 5, where I think Paul makes it very clear that Enoch was assumed into heaven. We also know that the great prophet Elijah, right, the the fiery chariot came down and swooped and took him up into heaven bodily. There's also a tradition that's picked up in the epistle of Jude that Moses' body was also assumed into heaven. And your listeners, if you're writing things down, Deuteronomy 34, verse 6, and they can look at Jude, verse 8, you know, where it says that the, that the archangel Michael battled for the body of Moses. He battled Satan for the body of Moses. So there's this beautiful tradition of the assumption of Moses. Of course, Moses and Elijah appear bodily with Jesus at the Feast of the Transfiguration. But you know, Annie, the most important point, besides the fact that the Bible ha- has multiple accounts of bodily assumption, and therefore is not an anti-biblical uh, doctrine that Mary was also assuming him. And the most important thing for us to remember is this, that God is not the author of death. Death is the greatest insult thrown into the face of God. He never planned for us to die in the first place. In fact, he, he, he planned for the exact opposite. God is love, and love is the sharing of our life, and God's life is eternal life, and we who receive his life 
are meant to live forever. We believe and profess in the creed that we believe our bodies will be resurrected on the last day. We say that in the creed. And many, I think, sadly, we, we say the creed so often we forget those words, that we believe that we will be resurrected bodily and live forever bodily. Mary's assumption, while it may not be common, is normal. That is what is supposed to happen. We are not supposed to experience bodily decay. What happened to Mary is what God wants for all of us. And if we, if we have a problem with Mary's assumption, we have a problem not only with the biblical accounts of the assumption, but we have a problem with God's plan of salvation. God is the author of life, not of death. Amen to that. We've been talking to Father Hezekiah Carnazzo. And Father, I know you've got a whole hour-long talk on this very topic. Where can listeners find it? Yeah, they can go to instituteofcatholicculture.org. That's instituteofcatholicculture.org. Go to our library, sign up as a member for free, and then uh, and then do a search for Body and Soul, uh, the Feast of the Assumption of Mary, instituteofcatholicculture.org. Which is linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. It's 21 minutes past the hour. Do you like your coffee cold and maybe a little sweet this time of year? Look no further than Mystic Monk Coffee for a variety of flavors that would be perfect for your summer cold brew. And when you click the Mystic Monk link at sunrisemorningshow.com before you buy, we get a commission from your purchase. By the way, our Sunrise Morning Show travel mugs are really good at keeping drinks cold, and you could find those in our online store. Pick out a mug and link to the Mystic Monks through sonrisemorningshow.com. That's sunrisemorningshow.com. I'm Father Timothy Shear. These are Biblical Impressions. Ahikar is a name not familiar to us, but he was a nephew of Tobit. Ahikar's biography was famous in Assyrian literature long before the book of Tobit was written. The title of this famous biography was The Story and the Wisdom of Ahikar. Because he had no children, Ahikar adopted his son Nadin and groomed him to serve in the royal court. But Nadin was not a gracious man. He later schemed to ruin his uncle. Ahikar was arrested and condemned to die. But the officer in charge spares his life because Ahikar once saved his life. The king later restores Ahikar to his post, and Nadin, the wicked nephew, is put into prison. Ahikar means, my brother is honorable. The name is a good fit for this character. Even though we might not share the name, we can certainly share his character. For Sacred Heart Radio, I'm Father Timothy Shear. Happy to welcome back Dr. Anthony Lillis. His book, Fire from Above, Christian Contemplation and Mystical Wisdom. Dr. Lillis, welcome back. It's great to be with you, Annie. Thanks for having me this morning. Absolutely. Dr. Lillis, what is the importance of our Blessed Mother Mary in Christian contemplation and mental prayer? She accompanies us in the deepest parts of prayer. It, it, we, we never really go to Jesus alone because Jesus of course, is at the right hand of the Father in a 
at the right hand of the Father. He's surrounded by the angels and the saints. In a special way, his, his mother is with him. And, uh, and so she accompanies us. She walks with us to Jesus and in walking with us. She teaches us the deep secrets of our faith. The Carthusians, in fact, before they leave their cell or go into their cell, they have a little kind of kneeler with an image to Our Lady, and they ask Our Lady to be with them in their comings and goings, precisely because their whole life is meant to be dedicated to prayer, and they know that she can teach that. Mm, That's beautiful. Now, Pope St. John Paul II took totus tuus as his pontifical motto, and of course, that's a reference to the role of total consecration to Jesus through Mary in his own life. What exactly is Marian consecration, and where did it come from? Marian consecration is actually a consecration to Jesus through Mary. It uh, probably was latent in the very first Marian prayers of the Church uh, that go back way to the beginning of the first centuries of Christianity. However, uh, it was uh, in the teaching of St. Louis de Montfort uh, in France. I want to say he was a kind of a priest missionary who was interested in the renewal of the Church in his home country at a time uh, where uh, there, there was a little bit of uh, laxity and, and, uh, and questions about the Church. And he discovered that devotion to Our Lady set his own life on fire. This raises a big question. A lot of people in their devotion to Our Lady sometimes question, does Our Lady get in the way of Jesus? In this, uh, in this instance, uh, what he discovered is that actually Mary takes you closer to Jesus. And if you entrust yourself to her and, uh, and, and kind of have confidence in her, accept her as your, your mother, in fact, Take her into your home the way the beloved disciple took her into her home at the foot of the cross. Your your whole life is disposed to a more radical living of the faith of your faith in Christ. She performs the, a, a ministry of mother in your life that helps bring your faith to to birth. So when we consecrate ourselves to Our Lady, uh, Our Lady takes us closer to Jesus. Yeah, so you mentioned that moment at the foot of the cross. Can we talk about that a little bit more? How was a new type of maternity revealed to us there? Well, this refers to the the fact that Jesus, uh, before he died, while he was suffering on the cross, uh, looked at his mother and the disciple whom he was loved. They were standing at the foot of the cross, standing as a sign of faith. So they have faith at the foot of the cross, and Jesus, uh, looking at, at them, uh, said, you know, uh, told, told his mother, woman, behold your son. And, and in that moment, he was dispossessing himself, even of his mother, as he died. But he was doing it in the most beautiful way. Uh, he didn't just leave her, uh, but he entrusted her to the disciple whom he loved. And in doing that, uh, the, uh, what he was doing had incredible theological significance. By calling her woman, uh, this was another, a title he'd used for her in Cana, um, uh, he, he was referring to her as a new kind of Eve. Uh, Eve is also called woman in the Bible, and that is a, uh, the mother of the living. And so he entrusts his mother, Mary, 
to his disciples, specifically as the the uh, mother of the living. And um, and the point is, when we go to the cross, uh, re- renounce and, uh, uh, things in our lives, or make sacrifices, or offer things uh, up, she, um, uh, uh, Jesus, even as we're dispossessing ourselves, Jesus has given us his mother, mm-hmm. and uh, and that mother helps us make that sacrifice, just like she helped Jesus make his sacrifice. And I want to ask you, too, I mean, obviously, her role at the foot of the cross being uh, an instrumental part of this question, but how is Mary, in in the course of, of her entire life, the supreme model of being a Christian disciple? Well, it's an interesting thing as you go to follow the Lord. Um, uh, it, the closer you draw to Him, you suffer what may seem to be mysterious rejections along the way. Sometimes he seems absent, and sometimes he relates to you in a way so unfamiliar, you're wondering whether or not he's even there. And uh, if you've had any of those experiences, if you study the scriptures closely, this is exactly what happens to Mary. Uh, Mary, who searches for her son in the temple to find him, and he, instead of uh, being grateful about being found or sorry that you left her, uh, he almost rebukes or corrects her, didn't you know I needed to be in my father's house? Or uh, the people who cried out, you know, your mother and brothers are are outside, and and those who do the will of my father are are my mother and brother. And uh, he he seems to distance himself, and John Paul II observed the same thing, and he he associates it with John on the cross's doctrine of the dark night where God mm. is drawing close to us in a beautiful new way. And as he does, he transforms us. So just like this happened in Mary's life, it happens in our life too. And and it's not accidental, and we haven't done something wrong. God is doing something beautiful in our hearts, just like he did for his own mother, Mary. And in, in those little moments that seem like seeming rejections of you know, some kind from the Lord to his mother, she remained faithful. Boy, that's the key, Annie. And that's that's the that needs to be the guiding light for us is come what come may, we must continue to believe in his love and in his presence and to do everything out of that love and presence. It, uh, it never says she went away sad. She even when she heard mysterious words, she considered continued to stand and wait for her son. And her son never disappointed her. And that needs to be our posture, too. Now, we've talked before about Mary as the gate of heaven. You know, she was the means by which our Lord came to earth. And so is the best means by which we on earth now can reach our Lord in heaven. How does this idea tie into what we know popularly as Marian consecration? In Marian consecration, uh, what we in fact do is we we set ourselves also at the foot of the cross in the place of the beloved disciple or with the beloved disciple and just like he accepted her into his home we accept her into our heart and we do this so that she can accompany us in our own sacrifice elizabeth of the trinity saw the supreme moment of sacrifice our supreme offering being the same as christ christ gave his supreme offering at the moment of his death, with Mary standing at the foot of the cross, 
And so, too, when we invite Mary into our hearts in our supreme moment, the moment of our death, she's praying for us, and she will stand with us, interceding that we receive all the graces we need. She, in a way, maternally helps uh, give birth to us in heaven. The bond between the natural mother and a child is no less real. In fact, it's even deeper between the spiritual motherhood and us, uh, the children of the Church, and in a mysterious way because of Jesus, her children too. Would you say in a way, then, that, that the Blessed Mother stands at the foot of our crosses too? I think that's a very powerful image, and I think it's true. I think she's with us. And even if somebody was to believe in her son but never acknowledge her presence, I think she's still there praying because she loves her son and she loves her son's work. And so she's always at prayer and deeply dedicated for every soul. But I think it increases her joy and her freedom in our life when we acknowledge that presence and um, and avail ourselves of, of her presence, her, her prayers for us, her maternal love. I think it's transforming for our hearts. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about Marian consecration and St. Louis de Montfort. What did he have to say about how consecration to Jesus through Mary, how does that actually help us in our own prayers? Oh, St. Louis de Montfort, he viewed um, just as Jesus dispossessed everything to give us his mother so that, so that we have a real spiritual mother in Mary. Mary uh, is also dispossesses, dispossesses everything and gives it to us. She holds nothing back in her motherhood, just like a good mother doesn't hold anything back for her, to her baby. She, she gives us her prayer, and giving us her prayer, she gives us the prayer of Jesus. Hmm. And, uh, and, and so she enables us to, to identify uh, the movement of our heart with the movement of His, uh, and she does this by giving us her movement of heart, uh, uh, the movement of heart that carried her uh, uh, all the way to the cross of her son so that she could stand there firm. And, and, um, and, and she wants us to learn that same movement of prayer. Um, Elizabeth of the Trinity put it in terms of music, that there's a mysterious song that only Mary knows, that only Mary heard from Jesus, uh, because she stood at the foot of the cross. And and she wants to, our Mother Mary, wants to teach us the song that Jesus sang to the Father from the cross. She knows it because she heard it, and she's the one who can pass it on to us. The book is Fire From Above, Christian Contemplation and Mystical Wisdom, one of my favorite topics, Marian Consecration and Our Lady in Prayer. And uh, Anthony Lillis, we will have this book linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Thank you so much. Thank you, Annie. Have a good morning. You do the same. Thank you. You're listening to a special Marian edition of the Sunrise Morning Show on this her feast day. It's 35 minutes past the hour. This is Father Rob Jack from Mount St. Mary's Seminary. In this month of August, we remember the life of many saints. But one saint I would like to reflect on right now is St. Bernard of Clairvaux. He is known as the mellifluous doctor. He has been given this title because of the sweetness about which he spoke of the love of Jesus and Mary. He was born in the year 1090 near Dijon in France, and he died in the year 1153. In the year 1112, St. Bernard joined the Cistercians, which is a group of Reformed Benedictines 
who sought to live the rule of Benedict more closely. After three years with the community, St. Bernard, with 12 brothers, was sent to found a monastery in Clairvaux. Because of their great reputation for prayer and holiness, the number soon increased to more than 130 members. St. Bernard was also known for his intelligence and devotion to Christ and to the Church, and he never backed off from a fight. He took on St. Peter Abelard, a philosopher-theologian who taught in Paris. He also defended the faith against the Albigensian heresy in 1145. St. Bernard is best known for his great love for the Blessed Virgin Mary. While he wrote no formal theological treatise, his monks collected all of his homilies on Mary, and among them were his homilies on the Song of Songs, in which Mary is seen as the bride. By the time of his death, there were 68 monasteries that had been founded from his monastery of Clairvaux. In the year 1174, he was canonized a saint, and in 1830, he was named a doctor of the church. In the 17th century, the French scholar Henri Vallois wrote of St. Bernard's writings, His discourse is everywhere sweet and ardent. It so delights and warms that from his tongue honey and milk seem to flow in his words, and a fire of burning love to glow from his breast. St. Bernard's feast day is on August the 20th. St. Bernard of Clairvaux, pray for us. The Sunrise Morning Show continues. August 15th is the Feast of the Assumption. And to take a look at some of those apologetics arguments surrounding the Assumption, with us now is Joe Heschmeyer. Joe, good morning. Good morning. So let's talk about uh, some of these reasons. You have a post with five of the reasons. I don't know how many we're going to be able to get to, but I want to get to one that I, I think is at least helpful for us to know, and that is early Christians collected the bones and relics and marked the tombs of all the people who were most important in the early church. There is no tomb that contains the remains of Mary out there. Right. I mean, even more so in Jerusalem, uh, there is the tomb where she's said to have died, and it is empty, and everyone knows it's empty. Uh, I was in Jerusalem uh, in early 2018, and I was shocked by this, um, because it was Catholics and Orthodox and Muslims who would come to venerate this tomb, um, where they said Mary died before she was assumed into heaven. So, let's uh, move from that one, then. So, that kind of falls under the... Uh... <laughs> Under the category, there's no arguments that we can say that Mary wasn't assumed, at least not from the historical record. Uh, but Scripture talks about the Ark of the New Covenant in heaven, and Mary is the Ark of the New Covenant. Yeah. Uh, so if you go to Mass, you might notice that the psalm um, is, you know, so there's this line in Psalm 132, Arise, O Lord, and go to thy resting place, thou and the Ark of thy might. So there is this promise that... Um, the ark is going to go, you know, into heaven, uh, whatever that means. Like, maybe this is just a warning to Indiana Jones, or maybe this has, like, a deeper meaning uh, in, in a Christological sense. So we should be asking, who does the psalmist mean by the ark? Who or what? Right. There's that, but there's also, you know, the, the woman clothed with the sun who supplants this image of the Ark of the Covenant in Revelation 12, um, from the end of Revelation 11 moving into a, uh, Revelation 12, but this is something that I think that a lot of Protestants don't understand because most of us come from, well, the U.S. was founded by the British, and the British are Anglicans, and 
they have kings and queens, and the queen in that sort of European monarchical tradition is the wife of the king. Not so in Judaism. Yeah, so when we hear references to the queen um, in Judaism, sometimes it means like the wife of the king, but it could also mean uh, what we would call the queen mother in kind of the British sense. It's like the, you know, the mother of the king. And so part of, you know, understanding what's going on here is, is really understanding just kind of this biblical framework. One thing that was striking to me uh, in kind of doing some of the research for this, I was seeing Protestant arguments against Mary as queen that would say things like, so I'm going to directly quote, and this is from a Protestant website, says, there is most certainly a king of heaven, the Lord of hosts. He alone rules in heaven. He does not share his rule or his throne or his authority with anyone. Uh, and they, it goes on to say, the idea that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is the queen of heaven, has no scriptural basis whatsoever. Well, we already heard Revelation 11 to 12. The end of Revelation 11 says that God's temple in heaven opened, the Ark of the Covenant was seen, and then John says that he saw a woman clothed with the sun with a crown of 12 stars on her head. So there's someone or something clothed in heaven uh, and enthroned. And if you go on to read Revelation 12, uh, you'll find that this is the mother of Jesus. Yeah, so so with that image of the woman clothed with the sun, uh, it could be, well, it's kind of interesting to me the way that the church has sort of understood that image because it is, well, it's like a lot of things in Scripture and in, you know, Catholic sacramental theology. It's a symbol, but it's also the thing that it's a symbol of. Uh, so how are we supposed to understand that image of the woman in the book of the Re- in the book of Revelation? Uh, how how have the church fathers and other Christian sources understood that image as Mary, as the church, as Israel, as all of the above? All of the above. So part of the issue here is that we expect it to be like this image has one and only one meaning. And that's just not really the way that images work in Scripture. Uh, it's not the way they work, uh, for instance— in the book of Revelation itself. So in that same chapter, it says that the son of this woman is destined to rule all the nations with an iron rod. Within Revelation itself, that description is applied to two distinct groups. It's applied to Jesus, and it's applied to the, applied to the triumphant saints. And so if you, if you just look at the use of the one who's to rule with the iron rod, it's taking an image from the Psalms, and applying it uh, to two distinct uh, reference without any contradiction. It's not saying, well, because Jesus reigns, then the saints don't reign, or because the saints reign, therefore Jesus doesn't. The Protestant website I quoted before is, is totally wrong. Uh, St. Paul says in Second Timothy, if we have died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. So it can be both ends. So it's the mother of God. Uh, it, so we see the mother of Jesus being presented as the one in heaven. That's going to be Mary, but it's also going to be, in some sense, Israel. And because they want to, you know, to rule to rule with an iron rod is also the Christians. We can also speak of the Church, which is why we say both Mother Church and Mother Mary, and there's no contradiction there. You know, which is why also when we see the twelve stars on the crown of Mary there. Uh, and the question is, well, what do those 12 stand for? Do they stand for the 12 tribes of Israel? Do they stand for the 12 apostles and the foundation of the church? Well, and as as is the answer with most questions about Catholic stuff, the answer is, well, yes. Yeah, both ends. Uh, and, and we see that connection made, actually, between the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes 
in Luke 22 when Jesus tells the 12 that they'll be sitting on thrones judging the 12 tribes. Right, exactly. We we haven't even gotten to the stuff about how it's reasonable to believe that Moses could have been assumed into heaven at one point. Uh, it's reasonable to know from the scriptures that Enoch walked with the Lord and was no more. We know for a fact that Elijah was assumed. It's not crazy to think that Mary might have been as well. And of course, the church teaches that, yes, definitely she was. If you want to read five reasons to believe in the assumption of Mary, Joe Heschmeyer's article linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Thanks so much, Joe. We'll talk to you again soon. My pleasure. I'm Matt Swaim. Thanks for listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. We'll be right back. Support for the Sunrise Morning Show is from Visiting Angels. Visiting Angels provides experienced, compassionate care to millions of aging adults nationwide by keeping them safe and healthy in the comfort of their own home. Whether it's a short break for caregivers or for long-term assistance, Visiting Angels provides hygiene, meals, light housework, companionship, and more. And services are available up to 24 hours per day. Visiting Angels, online at visitingangels.com. That's visitingangels.com. Franchise opportunities available. Central Fabricators is proud to support the Sunrise Morning Show, where you'll get news from the Catholic perspective, while keeping you up to date on what's happening in the Vatican as well. It's also a great way to keep in touch with the Catholic faith throughout the week. Central Fabricators, based in Cincinnati, Ohio, is a family-owned business for over 75 years, manufacturing and repairing corrosion-resistant storage tanks, reactors, and pressure vessels. On the web at centralfabricators.com. That's centralfabricators.com. Coffee seems to become more important when any new school year rolls around, and this is a year to consider treating yourself to some truly delicious coffee. For that, we can highly recommend Mystic Monk Coffee, and when you shop their site after clicking the Mystic Monk link at sunrisemorningshow.com, you earn us a commission to help fund the show. You can also treat yourself to a new Sunrise Morning Show mug or travel mug in our online store. Get a mug and link to Mystic Monk Coffee through sunrisemorningshow.com. That's sunrisemorningshow.com. This is Father John Tregilio. We need Catholic Radio because it's a lifeline to Holy Mother Church. Catholic Radio enables us to know what the Church teaches, but also to have solidarity with one another. It is one way that we express our commonality, our communio, that we are family, and by staying together, we can be God's children here on earth. The world needs EWTN Catholic Radio, now more than ever. Very happy to welcome back to the Sunrise Morning Show, Liz Lev, the art historian, guide to Paris and Rome, and author of How Catholic Art Saved the Faith, The Triumph of Beauty and Truth in Counter-Reformation Art. Liz, good morning. Good morning to you, Annie. We're continuing today to talk about the Blessed Mother in post-Reformation art. What was the major difference in how the Blessed Virgin Mary was portrayed in art before and after the Protestant Revolt? Well, this is what made things difficult for the Protestants. I mean, you come to Europe. Actually, you come to Europe, go to parts of go to parts of North Africa. Everywhere you look, there are images of Mary. You can't help it. It's one of the very the earliest piece of Christian art we have from from two hundred or one hundred and eighty. The Catacombs of Priscilla is the image of the Madonna and Child. She has just been there since the beginning, since we've been making images. We have pictures of her as icons with the big eyes looking out at you. We have images of her spreading this mantle, protecting everybody. I mean, how can you say that this figure who was always there to listen to your intimate needs, who was always there to protect you, who's just always there, is really just, you know, 
removed from you. So what happens is the Catholics up the game, and in art they start having Mary be much more active. So now she's not just sitting there in an icon, but she's flying around, she's doing stuff. She's the busy, active intercessor, because at the end of the day, what the Protestants are claiming is that Mary does not intercede. And we, of course, know quite the contrary. So with that in mind, we're going to be talking about the dogmas of the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption. Uh, They weren't dogmatically defined until much, much later in history. But were these teachings nonetheless important in the 16th century Catholic Church? Absolutely. These teachings are very, they, they are, uh, they come into, uh, the history of the church already in 800. Uh, by 1100, 1200, there are already debates going on between the Dominicans and the Franciscans. And by the time we're in the Renaissance, these are ideas that people are exploring, not just, uh, by putting the Immaculate Conception in the liturgical calendar in the 15th century, but you already see these ideas being explored in art. So these are very deep, seeded notions about Mary's specialness being conceived without original sin, and again, that extraordinary uh, position she has in being raised or assumed bodily into heaven. These are fundamental parts of what Catholics envision uh, by 1500 about the Virgin Mary. So uh, go into this deeper in the the uh, the art world. You said that they were exploring this in art. How did it play out in the art world? Well, again, one of the things that I love about this Counter-Reformation period is that despite the fact, if you read sort of the historical, sort of secularizing historical accounts about how the Church tried to strangle art and they were so busy being so dogmatic and so rigid that no creativity could flourish, and yet, this is the moment when we actually formulate the image of the Immaculate Conception that you and I know today. This is the moment when we begin to come to this full flowering of these beautiful visions of the Assumption. So this is actually the moment where the creativity of artists is let loose because they are asked to help to explain a very complicated theological concept by using pictures. And so instead of reading the book, people are waiting for the movie. And these artists deliver. They give beautiful visions. And even though you can't, like, literally find the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption defined in Scripture, they were turning to Scripture to to help make these images, turning to the Book of Revelation. So with that in mind, tell us about Karachi's Madonna dei Scalzi. Right. So what, what happens here is that the, the, there, there's a way of de- demonstrating the Immaculate Conception during the Renaissance where they use scenes of the childhood of Mary. So one of the most common things they'll do is they'll show the stories of Anna and Joachim, an apocryphal story about the childhood of Mary. But the fact is, they start thinking about something that's more scriptural. This is a big effect of the Reformation. So they look to the woman clothed in the sun. They look at the book of the Revelations. And the very first artist to produce the image that will ultimately form what you and I know to be the Immaculate Conception as an image is Ludovico Caracci working in Bologna. And he's friends with this wonderful Cardinal Gabriele Pagliotti who's telling the artist, become tacit preachers to the people. We need you 
to help us illustrate these scenes. So what does he give us? He gives us an image of a woman standing on a crescent moon. She's holding the child, Jesus. She looks very young, and she's surrounded by the crown of 12 stars. So this is really, this is the woman of the apocalypse. Woman clothed with the sun, moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And then on either side, you have two saints who have affirmed in the history of the Church the teaching of Mary's Immaculate Conception and this connection with Eve, St. Jerome on the lower left, and on the right, St. Francis. And the Franciscans are, of course, course, the biggest promoters of the Immaculate Conception. And, of course, important to note, I mean, you look at at St. Francis in this image, he's holding the hand of the child Jesus, and that's an important thing, that he's going to Jesus, right? Absolutely. So it also reminds us, and it's, again, a very important point that the Protestants were continuously accusing the uh, Catholics of worshiping Mary. The adoration, the worship is to Jesus, but Mary is that figure who is there to present Jesus. As we can look at it, we're drawn to her, and it helps us approach Jesus. Now, you highlight two other paintings, both called the Immaculate Conception in your chapter here. Can you tell us about them? Absolutely. Uh, Guido Reni, who is, so Guido Reni is one of the students of Ludovico Caracci. Caracci, the Caracci cousins start a very important school who are going to produce, that school will produce some of the great Counter-Reformation painters. Guido Reni is the most elegant of them all. He is the artist who never goes overboard emotively. There's not too much, too much brighter strident color. So he gives us the people who prefer a more quiet form of meditation, less action, less characters. That is the person, that's Guido Reni's work. So Guido Reni gives us something much more subdued and elegant. It's very quiet. Mary, who's in these colors that are very pure colors, they're not too dramatic. She's standing on the moon and this light. He paints this amazing circle of golden light around her and the angels who are sort of standing in attention all about her. This time we see Mary alone, looking up, however, towards heaven. Mary, immaculately conceived, however, always focusing and always directing our focus upwards towards the Lord. And the other image, she looks so young in this painting. Ah, uh, well, this is this is what I've been we, 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 we keep mentioning. You mentioned twice now that the Immaculate Conception is by no means a dogma. It's not until 18, 1854. However, in Spain, it was such an important teaching and such an important part of the veneration of Mary that people would actually salute each other in honor of the Immaculate Conception as a way of saying hello. And so when the Protestants start to really challenge the Immaculate Conception, the Spanish ambassadors from the royal house go to Pope Paul VI and ask him, please, could you define a dogma? Because we really need to be able to promote this teaching and help this teaching as the Protestants are challenging it. And so even though the dogma was not pronounced, the greatest Immaculate Conception painter of all came from Spain. And his name was uh, Bartolomé Esteban Murillon, and he makes over and over and over these beautiful images of this young girl, so innocent, so, 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 so simple, in the what will now become the traditional colors of Mary of the Immaculate Conception. Mary, in his, in his versions, she wears white for purity and the blue of grace around her. Beautiful pictures. It really is. And we're running out of time, Liz, but I've got to give you a little bit of time at least to tell the story of Caravaggio and this painting of the Dormition of Mary. So, in the world's quickest explanation of this painting, it's a painting that he, he gets 
He gets his great commission to work for the Discalced Carmelites in Rome. 1605, they tell him to paint the Dormition of the Virgin. So they're, they're asking to show Mary going to sleep in, in, in death. Well, Caravaggio goes and paints this image, which when they first see it, they're totally shocked, and they reject the painting out of hand, because Mary doesn't look like this sort of sleeping angel. There's no, like, Sleeping Beauty Disney going on here. Oh, you have a body of Mary in a simple red dress outstretched, and all of the apostles, are, along with Mary Magdalene, are all kind of crying and weeping and hunched over next to her. You are brought to a bedside of a woman who has just died, and everybody is lost in his or her own personal despair. And that's all the discount Carmelites saw. But Caravaggio, thinking about what would the assumption have looked like? What would this magical moment look like? Mary does go to sleep in this world, and then she's assumed bodily to heaven. So on the upper left-hand corner, this mysterious light begins to enter. So it's just that moment when things are about to change from that sad scene into the new scene, and Caravaggio captures it in a very subtle way. It was rejected by the Carmelites, but Rubens happened to be in town, and Rubens immediately called a friend and said, you buy that painting right now, and sure enough, there it is in the Louvre, one of the great centerpieces of Caravaggio. (laughs) And there it is in your book, too. We uh, don't have time to get to a couple of other beautiful images that you highlight here, but all the more reason for folks to pick up your book, How Catholic Art Saved the Faith, which is linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Liz Lev, thank you so much. Thank you. That'll do it for this special edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. Hope you've enjoyed the last hour. Connect with us anytime via sunrisemorningshow.com, where you can get access to our podcasts, our SoundCloud page, as well as the Sunrise Morning Show mobile app. Again, that's sonrisemorningshow.com. For Matt Swaim, Paul Lockman, and all our guests, I'm Anna Mitchell. May God bless you and keep you and grant you his peace. Let's begin this hour of the Sunrise Morning Show with a prayer to Our Lady written by St. John Henry Newman. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. O Mother of Jesus and my Mother, let me dwell with you, cling to you, and love you with every increasing love. I promise the honor, love, and trust of a child. Give me a mother's protection, for I need your watchful care. You know better than any other the thoughts and desires of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Keep constantly before my mind the same thoughts, the same desires, that my heart may be filled with zeal for the interests of the Sacred Heart of your Divine Son. Instill in me a love of all that is noble, that I may no longer be turned to selfishness. Give me each day your holy and maternal blessing until my last evening on earth, when your immaculate heart will present me to the heart of Jesus in heaven, there to love and bless you and your divine Son for all eternity. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning and welcome to the special edition, the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell, and alongside Matt Swain, we're heading to the archives today to share with you some of our favorite interviews of Days Gone By. Hope you can stick around and enjoy the entire hour ahead. We'll get started right now at two minutes past the hour. Matt? It is time for Bible Foods, and of course, 
Our go-to person for that is Rita Heikenfeld of AboutEating.com. You can find her linked at SunriseMorningShow.com. Rita, good morning. Well, good morning, Matt. So the amount of food that's wasted in this country and around the world is shocking, and we want to be good stewards of the gifts that God has given us. So tell us about uh, this whole approach that we're taking uh, in terms of how to make the most of the food that we already have. Well, you know, you're exactly right. So many of us are cooking more, so we've got lots more, like, scraps and peels and things. And so what I've learned, the way I grew up, is is not to throw out maybe fruit that's it's a little bit overripe, onions that are sprouting, etc. So that's what we're going to talk about today, something a little different. So let's talk about the onions and the garlic. You know, some people will throw out an onion or a piece of garlic if there's, you know, a green shoot coming out of it, but you don't have to do that. No, you don't. And, you know, when you think of onions and garlic, that they're mentioned in Numbers in, in Chapter 11, very familiar chapter. What we, you can do is, I, here's what I do. If a recipe calls for green onions, Matt, and um, you've got a regular onion that's sort of sprouting just because it's a little bit old, what you can do is you can remove those sprouts, those green sprouts. And what that does, you can use them as green onions, and then that actually lake, lengthens the onion's life. So if the onion's real soft, I'll go ahead and just peel it. And by the way, you freeze those peels and the root end of onions just for stock. And then I'll dice up the onion and I'll just freeze it for, you can freeze it for up to three months, so you don't need to throw that away. And garlic that's sprouted, now here's where I want your opinion. Um, I love to use those little green sprouts. Some cooks think they're bitter. What do you, do you use them? I just use the whole thing and just put it in the garlic. I got one of those things where it's, you know, the handled, you know, garlic squeezer and it just squeezes all the way out the end. So I, I use the whole thing. Good or for I you. dice it. Good and, for you. And, and just go with it. Yeah, some uh, chefs think that that little bitter, uh, the green sprout is bitter. But what you can do is, if you don't want to do what you and I do, you can just divide the garlic up. And those uh, cloves that have sprouted, you can put those in a little bit of soil and you water those well and let it grow. It'll grow into green garlic, which is actually all the rage. And you can do that either indoors on a sunny windowsill or outside. And if you let that uh, one clove grow into a full season, you're going to wind up with another whole head of garlic pretty cool and a great thing you know especially to involve your kids with too you mentioned green onions now a lot of people only use the green part of the green onions you use both the green and the white part do you i of course i do i knew it (laughs) you and i are soulmates when it comes to food yeah i don't like to waste uh but here's some tips um the small root end that's left you can put that in a little uh, dish of water very shallow Um, Or if you have several, you just put them in a glass and just enough water to cover the roots. And you change that water every day. And after a day or so, Matt, what you're going to see are green sprouts shooting right up from the middle. Then you've got more green onions. And you can also plant them outside the root ends, and this is fun for kids, too. And you'll have the same result. This is like some little house on the prairie action going right now. (laughs) All right, let's talk about raisins. Oh, yeah, raisins. You know, when you think of uh, the chapter in John when um, we talk about I am the vine, you are the branches, etc. Talking about grapes, of course, raisins come from are, are just dried grapes. Um, they don't ever seem to go bad, but they really sometimes dry up so hard. So here's what I do. I'll just pour them in a bowl, and you can plump them up really quick by just pouring a tiny bit of boiling water over them. And there you go. You've got nice plump uh, raisins. 
Totally repurposed. All right, how about lemons? Uh, well, lemons, first of all, um, you can freeze whole lemons. But if you want to keep them in the fridge, what I'll do is I'll put them in a baggie and pour some water in that baggie, and then I pour all the water out, and I just leave behind what's clinging to the lemons. Then I'll seal the bag and put it in the fridge in the veggie bin. That keeps them plump and nice for up to two weeks. Um, and then you can also just put lemon peels in an ice cube tray, and you can fill that with some white vinegar. Um, you can freeze those and then put those cubes in a baggie and label. Make sure you label. What you do when you need to clean out your uh, disposal in the sink, throw a few of those down there, and the lemon actually kills bacteria. And, of course, ice sharpens the blade. So there you go, repurposing lemon peels. And if you get one of those lemons or limes that's been around too long and it's basically the consistency of a rock, uh, you take it outside and you use it as a baseball. <laughs> there you go. There you have it. <laughs> All right. Now, cheese, of course, mentioned, um, you, you know, we've, we've talked about that uh, before in yogurt and, and those sorts of things. But let's talk about how you help cheese that has gone kind of hard and dried out. And we all have that for sure. People don't wrap it properly. At least my husband doesn't. What I'll do is I'll take the cheese and I'll, I'll wrap it in a damp paper towel. And then you put that in a, in a baggie and seal it. And just keep it in the fridge for about a day. What happens, Matt, is that extra moisture won't revive it completely, but it'll give it enough moisture so you can grate it pretty easily. And then you and I do this. Uh, probably a lot of people do, but it's good to remind people the rinds of Parmesan and other hard cheeses, you can freeze those and just use those to season sauces and such. But I always say remember to remove them before you um, eat the sauce. Uh, we've been talking about various ways to sort of stretch the items in your kitchen. And one of the items that I love is basil. So uh, talk a little bit about that first. Oh, well, we all love basil, and I know it is a favorite herb of yours. It's not an herb mentioned specifically in the Bible as such, but herbs like rosemary, sage, thyme, and, again, basil, they were grown during uh, Bible times and used. They're just not mentioned. I, you know, after researching it, it's just amazing to me that the very long history that basil has and the legend says that a patch of basil sprung up right near the site of Jesus' tomb after his resurrection. And when you look up basil, it means king in Greek. And, you know, it's such a good culinary herb. Um, so today I'm sharing a, a few recipes, my freezer pesto, and then I'm going to use that in a really delicious salad um, that you can use in the dressing and also some tips on how to preserve basil. Let's talk a little bit about this uh, this freezer pesto, because if your basil's about to go, why not make it into something and freeze it? Oh, yeah. I'll have the complete recipe on my website, abouteating.com. But basically, it's basil, Parmesan cheese, pine nuts if you have them, garlic, um, some pepper, and olive oil. And if you don't have pine nuts, you can just make freezer pesto without it, and it's called Pistow, P-I-S-T-O-U. Um, I use my food processor. I have a friend who... Uh, uses an ice cream scoop and scoops it up into scoops, freezes it hard, and then puts it in baggies. It's a little thicker than regular pesto because it's made for the freezer. A great base for just about anything in the winter. Now, before we get to your Caesar salad recipe with pesto, you have a good way to stretch the romaine lettuce farther, too. Oh, yeah, here we go. Waste not, want not, even with our Bible foods. Put the, the core, you know, the bottom part, in a shallow dish of water, and you should change it every day. And just like those green onions, what's going to happen is that romaine mat will sprout new leaves right from the center, 
sometimes, if it likes where it's at, it'll develop roots, and then you can plant that whole core. So then you'll have lettuce for a long time after that. Well, that's pretty cool. So tell us about this Caesar salad you got. Oh, it's so delicious. It's called Pesto Lace Caesar Salad Dressing, and I got it from my, one of my daughter-in-laws, Jessie. And basically, you're going to use your pesto and then um, mix that with some mayonnaise and some Parmesan cheese and Dijon mustard, lemon juice, and garlic. And then you make a really good salad dressing out of that. If you want, you can use some anchovies or anchovy paste. I'll throw a little Worcestershire sauce in there, um, some ground pepper, and if it's too thick, a little bit of water. And you just um, basically mix that up, toss it with some romaine, um, and, and then add some more cheese on it right before you serve it. And it's really delicious and a great way to use those, that freezer pesto, too, in the winter. Well, Rita Heikenfeld, thank you so much. These are some great tips for taking the food that we have and making sure that we're good stewards of it. So this is some very helpful stuff. Have a great one. We'll talk to you again soon. Yep, we'll talk to you next week, Matt. I'm Matt Swaim, and you're listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. Back after this. Support is from Solidarity HealthShare. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things that violate your beliefs? Have you ever felt there has to be a better way, but didn't know you had any options? If you answered yes, I've got some good news for you. There is a better way and a more affordable way. Solidarity HealthShare can save you hundreds of dollars each month while actually supporting your beliefs. Because the best news is that Solidarity HealthShare costs a whole lot less than insurance. It's time to jump in and put your money where your faith is and put some money back into your wallet at the same time. Join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based healthcare sharing community. Prices start as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save, 844-334-3245. That's 844-334-3245. Solidarity HealthShare, 844-334-3245. You listen to the Sunrise Morning Show? Well, imagine promoting your business right here to other listeners of the Sunrise Morning Show. You'll reach like-minded folk across the nation on over 300 radio stations, each of those stations with thousands and thousands of listeners, not to mention all the people who listen on Sirius Satellite and our online app. Find out more about national underwriting of the Sunrise Morning Show by emailing me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com. L-E-A-H at sacredheartradio.com. Proclaiming the faith, changing lives. The year was 1981. The FCC license to operate a satellite earth station, the first ever given to an order of nuns, was granted to Our Lady of the Angels Monastery. Mother Angelica flips the switch and EWTN begins transmitting from Irondale, Alabama. To learn more about Mother Angelica's life and the history of EWTN, visit EWTN.com slash Mother Angelica. Joining us now on the Sunrise Morning Show is Ana Maria Cardinali. She's author of the new book, Music and Meaning in the Mass. Ana Maria, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I am very happy to have you. Now, this book appears to be at least primarily written for parish musicians. And you write in your introduction this. I urge you to recognize the great dignity and the crucial nature of your call, talking to parish musicians. And I seek here to offer you the tools to wield the power of your art at the service of the Eucharistic heart of Jesus on the altar. The devotion to him that you inspire or inhibit either consoles 
or wounds him and the salvation of souls he loves hangs in the balance. Really? I mean, I think some might think that sounds a little extreme to think that music has that much power at mass, that souls hang in the balance. How would you answer them? You're right. It is an extreme claim, and that's why it needs a sort of a book to explain it, because I don't think we understand at all, for the most part, the power that music has. So, first of all, our world seems to have forgotten that Christ is truly present in the Eucharist, how, how genuinely, literally, fully present, body, blood, soul, and divinity, He is on the altar. And if you look back at the many causes of that, strangely enough, one of them, and a very, very influential one of them, could be music. And, and it's for this reason. Music has the ability to alter our perceptions of what's happening around us profoundly. If you can imagine um, sort of the soundtrack to a movie and uh, how your perception of what would be taking place in that movie would be different if instead of the soundtrack you're used to, you heard, I don't know, something else, something with ukuleles and chipmunks when you were watching <laughs> the battle scene, right? right? Sure. Your perception of that battle scene would be completely different. It would be almost humorous. It would be enlivened. It wouldn't be the drama you were witnessing. And uh, music does that by speaking in its own language. Music influences our, our emotions, our physical responses, and our intellectual responses. So basically what I'm saying is that music has a language all its own, and that language is independent of any text that can be set to it. So what happens when we set sacred text, the prayers and the responses of the Mass, to music that doesn't communicate the same message as those texts, it produces in the listener an experience that is kind of like, honestly, it's an experience of a lie. It's the same experience we have if I were to say yes to you while kind of shaking my head and winking my eye. You, you don't know whether to believe my words or the more visceral message I'm sending with my, with my body language, or in, my, in this case here with the music. And we have some music that, well, we as parish musicians as a whole don't know what those effects are. And so if we don't know what they are, we can't make choices that make the message of our music accord with the message of the sacred text, and therefore make it clear to us in our, in our emotions and in our physical responses and in our intellect that what we are really witnessing on the altar is, in fact, Calvary. And this book, doesn't, this book gives parish musicians those tools. And not just parish musicians, but, you know, we're all parish musicians if we're participating in the sung responses to the Mass. Um, so this book helps... The musicians have those tools. It doesn't advocate a certain style. It doesn't advocate a certain way of doing anything except for understanding music's power and how to use it to speak the truth in the Mass. You know, that explained so much to me as to why the the song that I disparage the most is on Eagle's Wings, because I think oh, of gosh. the power of Psalm 91 put to the tune that On Eagle's Wings has, and it loses all its power. So it's interesting, isn't it, the, the mismatch you can have sometimes between text and music. Yeah, sometimes we think music is a matter of, of, of style or taste, or I like this and you don't like that. But it's, it's really none of those things when it comes to matching texts. And people who, like, for instance, people who write advertising jingles know this. People who, know, who write, um, like I was saying, like, like uh, film scores or, or 
you know, offer or, or the music that accompanies plays knows this, know this, but we don't apply that same knowledge like we used to um, in the mass. So how should a, a choir director or a music director go about choosing what sort of music to have at any given Sunday mass? So that's the fun thing that this book does, I think. It first uh, tries to enliven and reignite the Eucharistic devotion of the parish musician. And then it does this by going through the parts of the Mass and really explaining in the mystical reality of the Mass what's actually happening. I mean, sometimes we don't remember that when we sing the song we're actually actually participating in the worship of the angels as they adore Christ on Calvary. Things like that, things that we don't really know. So when a parish musician becomes more aware of the realities of each moment in the Mass, and then becomes aware of the power of music in the three ways it communicates to us. So it communicates to our bodies through rhythm, to our emotions through harmony, and to our intellects through melody. All that choir director or person uh, in charge of the music has to do is see if those three components, rhythm, harmony, and melody, match the reality of each moment of the Mass that's happening. Um, and really, once they know those three and they play that matching game, those decisions make themselves. And, and it's nice that it leaves it in the hands of the, the parish, uh, of the individual parish, because that music director is going to know the culture and the climate of his part or her particular congregation better than anybody. Mm-hmm. So those final choices need to be left in their hands. But this, one, this book gives them the tools to make those choices. Now, on the back cover of this book, there's a list of topics that you cover, and one of them is how an instrument's ability to sustain notes directly impacts the, the participation of the faithful. How is that? Isn't that interesting? The fact is that in order to sing along, large groups of non-professional musicians need to hear the melody they're supposed to sing clearly sustained. They need to hear some... Have you ever sung, um, you know, like uh, at, a, at a baseball game or at mm-hmm. a, a sports game, where everybody will sing together? Well, they're comfortable doing that, even if they've had a few beers at the baseball game, because there's an instrument sustaining their melodic line, showing them the note they're supposed to sing, and that instrument is loud and it's bright and they can hear it. So if you want a large congregation to be able to sing together, you need to hand them their melody sustained. And so this book gives you the tools for just solving those little problems that you might be wondering, well, why, why isn't this working? It'll give the, give the musician the tools to make that possibility work for their congregation. Wow. We've been talking to Ana Maria Cardinale. The book is called Music and Meaning in the Mass. Ana Maria, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. Such an honor to talk to you. Thank you. You're listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. It's 21 past the hour. St. John Paul II confidently pronounced, only through the Eucharist is it possible to live the heroic virtues of Christianity. Charity to the point of forgiving one's enemies, love for those who make us suffer, and when one is shocked by the silence of God in the tragedies of history. You must always be Eucharistic souls in order to be authentic Christians, he said. Authentic Christians, pray for that grace. For Sacred Heart Radio, I'm Precious Blood Father, Kevin Scalf. What does the church say about annulments? First, it is not a Catholic divorce, as this simply does not exist. The more proper term, declaration of nullity of marriage, 
helps us to better understand annulments. Clearly, it was a valid marriage from a civil standpoint, but the church requires more than a license and a ceremony for a marriage to be valid. There must be proper consent on the part of both parties. There must be a willingness to accept children. There must be an intent of permanency. Dispensations must be obtained if a priest or deacon does not witness the marriage, as well as some other conditions. If any of these are not met, the church views this civil marriage as only a civil marriage. If a marriage, in fact, satisfies all of the conditions set forth by the church, it is both valid and permanent. Unless it has been determined that one or more of the required conditions was not satisfied. Through a thorough investigation of the facts of the marriage as they existed at the time of the wedding. For more information, contact your local pastor or refer to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 1629 and 2391. For Sacred Heart Radio, this is Deacon Bill Mullaney. Happy to welcome back to the Sunrise Morning Family. He's the president of Ignatius Press. Mark, good morning. Good morning to you. And we're going to be talking today about the book by Father Aidan Nichols called Balthazar for Thomists. Now, just to lay the groundwork for those who are not familiar with, shall we call it, the rivalry between those who prefer, I guess you could say, the theologian Hans Urs von Balthazar and those who follow St. Thomas Aquinas. Can you uh, explain that to us? Well, uh, sure. A little complicated, but we'll try to boil it down. Of course, both men are uh, obviously Catholic theologians. Thomas Aquinas lived in the 13th century, Balthazar lived in the 20th century. Um, But it's their followers that sometimes get into conflict. The two men obviously uh, didn't live contemporaneously, so they didn't get in conflict. St. Thomas Aquinas really is sort of the lead Catholic theologian in the Church, by virtue of his contribution, uh, that was the case. But in the uh, late 19th century, Leo XIII put a special emphasis on recovering the thought of St. Thomas, especially in philosophy. St. Thomas is both a philosopher and a theologian, although we think of him mostly as a theologian, and of course he's a saint. And so there was a great deal of emphasis in recovering the thought of St. Thomas to kind of counter some of the mistakes in modern thinking, contemporary philosophy and theology. And so a whole movement to recover St. Thomas occurred, and it came to be called neo-scholasticism. Scholasticism refers to the philosophy of the schoolmen or the people, the teachers of the Middle Ages. And, um, and so, you know, basically there was a great deal of emphasis on St. Thomas. Well, there was, at the same time, uh, in the early part of the 20th century, there was this emphasis on a renewal of theology, going back to the sources. We call that resource months, a fancy word, but it just means going back to the sources. And uh, this meant the Scripture and the early Church Fathers, and it included St. Thomas Aquinas. And so there was, but it wasn't limited to St. Thomas. So there was this sort of twofold going back. There were those who were going back to St. Thomas, and then those who were kind of going back more broadly to Scripture and tradition and so on. And when they did that, you know, they kind of found different points of emphasis, different points of stress, and not everybody who went back to the sources 
was um, interpreted St. Thomas Aquinas the same way. So you got into this difference between those who interpreted St. Thomas, kind of following in the traditions of uh, his immediate disciples and so on, and those who went back to Thomas Aquinas, and even before Thomas Aquinas, for the theological formation. So the followers of Balthazar, and Hans Balthazar himself, was one of those people who went more back to the Scripture, early Church Fathers, uh, drew on them in, in their understanding of theology, and including their understanding of St. Thomas. So that's sort of, in a nutshell, how we got to these two different schools. Now, it's not not all that unique that there's uh, something of a rivalry, because even within um, more traditional Catholic theology, you have something of a rivalry between those who were kind of devotees of St. Augustine and those who are devotees of Thomas Aquinas, even though Thomas Aquinas himself drew heavily on St. Augustine. So, anyway... I mean, go back to the early church, even, you know, when I when I saw the title of this book, I was thinking of, of St. Paul saying, you know, let there be no divisions among you. You know, each of you is saying, I belong to Paul or I belong to Apollos or to Cephas or I belong to Christ. So we we do need to well, we can work through our differences. Right. And all still be faithful to the church. So when it comes to Thomas, what is are, would you say, the major sticking points when it comes to the theology of Balthazar? Well, part of it is that Balthazar is is a very much a speculative theologian. I mean, he's also a practical theologian, too, but there's, sometimes there's a difference. There's an emphasis on speculation in theology, where you're thinking about ideas, and you're, and you're you're not necessarily asserting them as, you know, absolute fact, uh, just thinking about things in a different way, and so some of the conflict comes about as a result of speculation. But um, I think um, what I would say that Thomists put, deal, uh, put a great deal of emphasis on metaphysics and the philosophy of Aristotle to understand uh, not just philosophy, but understand theological ideas. And Balthazar's not opposed to that, but Balthazar tends to frame his understanding of faith around um, other ideas, that actually, that are uh, based on insights of the ancient Greeks. Aristotle was an ancient Greek philosopher. Um, Balthazar tends to emphasize the beautiful, the good, and the true as a way of approaching God and what God has revealed. So um, one of the points of difference, I guess, is the most uh, Thomists kind of start with the true, and they want to they expound on the metaphysics of being, what does it mean to be, and they start with the, the notion of truth as a correspondence between our minds and reality. And Balthazar's not opposed to that, but he tends to want to start with beauty. He wants to say that there is a way of seeing, uh, that the beautiful is a guide to our encountering what's true. So that's an emphasis that Balthazar has. Again, Thomas Aquinas isn't opposed to that, and Thomists aren't necessarily opposed to that, but it's not usually where they start in the conversation about the truth. And then that's one of the points that Father Nichols makes in the book, is that sometimes these are just differences of emphasis or starting points. They're not differences um, where one, you know, one side says the other side is wrong. Uh, so, 
Sure. And um, important to note here, because you could kind of uh, boil this down to, um, you know, Dominicans versus Jesuits. And it's important to note that this defense of Balthazar, if you if you want to call it that, is written by a Dominican priest here. That's right. He's a Father Nichols. Aidan Nichols is, is a Dominican. He's definitely someone who, in you know, his theological thinking operates in the Thomistic tradition, the tradition following Saint Thomas Aquinas. So there, and he's written extensively on Balthazar. This is in his first book. He really went through the totality of Balthazar's writings and has done studies of all of them. So uh, this is not his first um, rodeo when it comes to to Balthazar. Well, what benefit do you think anyone, whether they be Thomists or not, what benefit can anyone take away from the theology of Balthazar? Well, I think what the main thing is to help us enrich our faith so that we are um, understanding, obviously, there are limitations to what we understand because we're entering in the mystery, and that's one of the points that Balthazar emphasizes. He tends to, to be suspicious of systems, putting things into boxes, theological systems. So um, one thing that we can learn is that while God has revealed himself and we can be certain of his word in the faith of the Church, there are many ways to approach the divine realities that God has revealed, and so we should be open to different approaches, uh, including approaches that emphasize what is beautiful, what is good in the sense of the, the good and the holy, and then what is true, that our approach to the truth should uh, draw on the goodness of the saints, um, the beauty that we see in the teaching of the Church, and the revelation of the Church, and even the beauty in the lives of the saints. When we exemplify that and share that with other people, it can be a powerful tool to helping them understand uh, Jesus Christ's encounter. Jesus Christ. That's one of the em- em- emphasis Balthazar has, is he wants people to understand the love of God and to encounter the what he calls the glory of the Lord, the beauty and the glory and the power of, of God's glory. And today, sometimes there's a kind of skepticism about the truth, and we don't want to give in to that skepticism, but sometimes the best way to help bring people to God isn't necessarily to start with an argument, but to point them to to the beauty of the liturgy or the beauty of the saints and things of that sort. So I think that's something that uh, it's an emphasis of Balthazar's that I think many people could benefit from today. Well, I think the casual observer in terms of, of Catholic theology, the first two things that they would think of with Balthazar is, one, beauty, which you've discussed quite a bit here. Um, also, there's this perception that Balthazar didn't believe that anybody was in hell. Uh, does this book cover that? He does mention that. He does talk about that. Balthazar, of course, this is the speculative side of things. Balthazar did is widely thought to have held that view, but he doesn't hold that view. He mm-hmm. holds out a view for hope that, well, that we can hope that people, uh, you know, before they die or in the process of death or or whatever, however you want to describe that, that they have an encounter with God and turn to God. But he doesn't. Uh, assert that this is a certainty. And in fact, he says, because we can't be certain, we have to take very seriously, not just the possibility of other people's damnation, but our own, own damnation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, so, so that's, but this is sometimes misunderstood. Um, and, and, and Father um, Nichols does talk about that. He does help clarify that. 
Will there be a companion volume called Aquinas for Balthasarians, Mark? Yeah, I was, I've been thinking about that uh, for Father Nichols, you know, St. <laughs> St. Thomas Aquinas for, for Balthasarians. Um, and, and it would be useful because I think that there actually are um, uh, elements of Thomas Aquinas that um, followers of Balthasar can recover. You know, somebody who's very good about this is... is is Dr. Uh, Matthew Levering, who's actually written an introduction uh, called The Achievement of Balthazar. Mm-hmm. It's an introduction to Balthazar. And Matt Levering is a Thomist. You know, he's a dyed-in-the-wool committed Thomist. Uh, so uh, maybe we can talk uh, Matt Levering into doing the uh, Thomism for Balthazarian book. You heard it here first from Mark Brumley, the president of Ignatius Press. We're going to hold you to it, Mark. There you go. All right. We've got Balthazar for Thomas by Father Aidan Nichols, linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Mark Brumley, president of Ignatius Press, thank you so much. Thank you. It's the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. It's 35 minutes past the hour. We'll be right back. This is Father Rob Jack with the Catechism Moment. People have often asked me why they have to go to confession. The Catechism teaches that one must confess their sins if they are in a state of mortal sin. Paragraph 2042 also states that we must confess our sins once a year. But are those the only times we ought to make use of the sacrament? Paragraph 1458 teaches this. Without being strictly necessary, confession of everyday faults, which are venial sins, is nevertheless strongly recommended by the Church. Indeed, the regular confession of our venial sins helps us to form our conscience, fight against evil tendencies, and let ourselves be healed by Christ and progress in the life of the Spirit. A big area of focus in health care nowadays is preventative medicine. Frequent confession is the same type of preventative medicine for our souls. Our spiritual lives need constant attention. There are temptations that we face every day. We get tired and we get frustrated or we're hurt, and that is when the devil tends to strike us. And while a perfect act of contrition and a devout reception of the Holy Eucharist removes venial sins, the encouragement and the compassion of a good priest confessor helps to strengthen us. The priest becomes for us an instrument of God's mercy who not only has the authority to absolve sins, but can also give us concrete advice on how to seek things that bring us closer to God, and also ways to deal with temptation and sin when it occurs. So, if we take seriously the need to address venial sins, it will give us the grace and prudence to avoid mortal sin. I encourage you to make a good confession of your sins every six weeks to two months. That will keep your soul alive with the presence of our merciful God. I'm Matt Swaim, joined now by Dr. Regis Martin, who teaches at Franciscan University in Steubenville, also writes for the National Catholic Register, as well as a few other places. Dr. Martin, good morning. Good morning. Happy to be here. Well, it's great that you use the word happy, because we're talking about an article you uh, wrote recently on happiness. You know, I know that uh, most of us realize that God wants us to be holy, that he wants us to love him. Do you think we sometimes forget that God wants us to be happy? Well, he wants us to be happy, I think, on his terms, which 
which alone, I think, can uh, ensure genuine, lasting happiness. Uh, that comes from a, a life of virtue, or at least uh, an effort uh, to secure virtue. But happiness in, in worldly terms uh, is, is pretty uh, elusive uh, and, in the end, uh, uh, frustrating. Because it doesn't, uh, it doesn't uh, validate the deepest uh, desires of the human heart. You know, truth, beauty, justice, good, God himself. I mean, how telling is it that, you know, a cheeseburger and some fries and a toy is called a happy meal? As though that could actually make us happy. I mean, but that's what we chase, isn't it? Right, yeah. And then we think, well, maybe if I had a second happy meal, that would optimize uh, my, my possibility of, of lasting happiness. Uh, it's, uh, it's delusional, but uh, we oftentimes uh, chase these uh, delusions. Uh, and for some, uh, they define uh, our lives. Uh, we become fixated upon them. Uh, God has to break that stranglehold. Uh, and sometimes uh, circumstance uh, steps in uh, and brings down the myth that I can somehow manufacture my own happiness. Uh, the fact is, you can only manufacture your own misery, uh, and the escape from that, I think, is only a work of grace. Well, in your article for the National Catholic Register on happiness, you go into Pascal and his writing on the three types of people that there are in this world. I wonder if you could sort of unpack that analogy of Pascal. Sure. Uh, let me give a, a brief summary of it. Pascal says uh, there are three categories of men. Uh, there are those who have sought God uh, and have found him. Uh, they're happy and they're reasonable. Then there are those who don't look uh, and, of course, don't find God. Uh, they're not happy and they're not reasonable. But in the middle, which I think uh, is that area where we locate ourselves, there are those who continue to search for God. I mean, he is the driving impulse behind all of their choices, but they haven't quite found him. Uh, and they're reasonable, but they're not happy. Uh, and I, I think that position roughly uh, corresponds uh, to most of us most of the time. Uh, we're looking for this ultimate good. We know where to find it. But for some reason, uh, it continues to escape uh, our best efforts to lay hold of. Uh, and that suggests that really happiness is not the final end. God is. Uh, and when you think of his son uh, languishing, hanging, uh, lifeless upon the cross, that wasn't exactly a happy meal uh, at McDonald's, but it made possible uh, the meal we call the Eucharist, and which is a foretaste of, of that heavenly banquet where I think all of us will be uniquely and eternally happy. Well, I'm so glad that you mentioned that because in the and the worship services that I um, attended growing up as an evangelical, um, we didn't have a liturgy, right? And if we had, I don't think the word happy would have ever been in it. But the word happy appears in the liturgy at the Catholic Mass. And it's in the context of what you just said. We hear the word happy when we hear happy are those who are called to his supper. Right, right. Yes, that that is true. Uh, it's ambiguous, uh, isn't it? I mean, it, it, there's an irony uh, about the search for happiness, because if you forget about looking for happiness, but focus instead on looking for God, uh, at the end of the day, you will be happy and you will have God. Uh, but if you 
obsessively uh, fixate on immediate gratification and somehow confuse that with ultimate happiness, then you're going to be constantly thwarted and frustrated, and you're going to be impossible to live with. Which is, in fact, what Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6.33, when he says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So there's just a whole lot to discuss in this whole question of what it means to be happy and to seek God as the ultimate goal and end, and then everything else works out. Uh, Dr. Regis Martin, we've got your article linked uh, at sunrisemorningshow.com so people can read it from the National Catholic Register. And you've got a podcast as well, right? I do. Yes. Yeah, In Search of the Still Point. And we'll link that as well at sunrisemorningshow.com. Dr. Martin, always a pleasure talking with you. We'll talk to you again soon. You've made me happy. Uh, thank oh, you. Well, <laughs> that's the least I could do, right? You've done the same for me this morning. I appreciate it. God bless you. I'm Matt Swaim, and you're listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. Back after this. The first annual Dominican Rosary Pilgrimage, sponsored by the Dominican Friars Foundation, will take place on Saturday, September 30th at the Basilica of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C. This all-day event will feature conferences by Father Gregory Pine, resuscitation of the rosary, a fervorino by Father Lawrence Liu, and mass with Father James Brent as homilist. Join us for this day of prayer to Our Lady. For more information, visit rosarypilgrimage.org. That's rosarypilgrimage.org. For more than 150 years, the Comboni missionaries have traveled to nearly every corner of the world. Founded by St. Daniel Comboni, we are an international Catholic organization dedicated to ministering the world's poorest and most abandoned people. Your donations make a huge impact, and 95% are used to fund our many projects. Find out more at ComboniMissionaries.org. That is ComboniMissionaries.org. Waking up with Mystic Monk Coffee is definitely a better way to start your day. Not only are you getting a great cup of coffee, but your purchase helps support the life of the Carmelite Monks of Wyoming. And your purchase can also help our work. All you need to do is go first to sonricemorningshow.com. When you click the Mystic Monk link on the side of the page, we earn a commission. Support the monks and support the Sunrise Morning Show. Click the Mystic Monk link at sunrisemorningshow.com. That's sonricemorningshow.com. At EWTN, we're committed to spreading the gospel from a Catholic perspective, touching millions via television, radio, publishing, and the internet. Right now, EWTN is looking for qualified people to fill a number of exciting positions. Make a difference using your God-given talent. Visit EWTN.com employment today. EWTN is the Global Catholic Network. Joining us again on the Sunrise Morning Show, Carlo Broussard. He's an apologist with Catholic Answers, author of the book Prepare the Way, and online himself at carlobroussard.com. Carlo, good morning. Hey, good morning, Anna. Now, we're continuing our series on Marian apologetics, and today we are going to defend the dogma of the Assumption, Body and Soul of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Now, we as Catholics believe that Mary was free from all sin. How does that play into our belief that she was assumed into heaven? Yeah, that's a great question. In fact, you could make an argument for her bodily assumption from her sinlessness. The idea is that, you know, if Mary 
were free from sin, both original and personal, then it would follow that their, her body would not have corrupted, uh, being that she was free from sin, since corruption of the body uh, is a consequence of original sin. Uh, and we do believe that Mary was free from sin, both original and personal, and we give a variety of reasons for that. I think the most profound is the fact that she is the new Eve, and therefore we could conclude that it's fitting that in God's providential plan, Mary's body would not corrupt. As to whether she died, well, there's a variety of traditions. There's differing traditions on that question in the church. Uh, one tradition says she did die. Other traditions say she didn't die. Uh, she simply, you know, fell asleep and then the Lord assumed her into heaven type of thing. Uh, but her sinlessness, I think, does indeed fit within uh, the dogma or a reason for the dogma and our belief that Mary was bodily assumed. Absolutely. Now let's look at scripture. Tell us about Revelation chapter 12 and how it can point to the fact that her body and soul are both in heaven together. Yeah, this is an interesting text, Anna. John has a heavenly vision where he sees a woman and he describes her as clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And then in verse 5, it talks about how she brought forth a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up uh, to God and to his throne. There's a red dragon there looking to devour the child, which St. John tells us that red dragon is the serpent, the ancient serpent of old, the devil. So first thing to notice is that the woman is an individual and not merely a symbol of the church or Israel, uh, although it can be a symbol of the church or Israel. But I think the first primary meaning is that it is an individual person, especially when you read it in light of the context where you have the male child whom we take to be an individual person, namely Jesus. You have the red dragon whom John tells us is an individual person, an angelic person, the devil. And then also too, in verse seven, you have Michael, the archangel. So out of the four characters, three of them are individual persons, not merely symbols. And so I think it's reasonable to conclude that the woman is an individual, not merely a symbol. Now, what's interesting about this woman, Anna, is that John describes her in bodily form. He says she has a moon under her feet and a crown of stars upon her head. This contrasts how John describes the souls in heaven in Revelation 6, 9, when he says the souls of those who had been slain, and they're crying out for God's vengeance to be bestowed upon their enemies on earth. So the fact that John describes human souls as souls in Revelation 6, 9, but here he's describing this woman in bodily form, gives us a clue into the fact that John is intending to, seems as if John is intending to share with us that this woman is there bodily. She's not just a human soul without a body. Now, who is this woman? Well, in our Catholic tradition, we've always said it's Mary, right? And I think the key there is that she's described as the, uh, the queen mother, the mother of the messianic king. So notice she gives birth to the one who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. That's a quote from Psalm 2.9. That's a reference to Psalm 2.9 was a prophecy about the messianic king to come. And this woman is revealed to be the mother of that messianic king, whom we know as Jesus. And therefore, this woman is Mary. And so we seem to have here John telling us that Mary is, he sees Mary 
in heaven in bodily form with her body in contrast to human souls in heaven without bodies. And so the church in her tradition has looked look to this text as a biblical witness uh, to the bodily assumption. It's, you know, the church has never said it's sort of a proof text, uh, but the church has looked to it as a biblical witness to the dogma. It's incredible. I'd never thought about it before looking at that passage in that particular way, Carlos, so I really appreciate that. Now, kind of moving forward, I guess you could say, in Marian apologetics, a week on from the solemnity of the Assumption, we in the Church have on the calendar the Feast of the Queenship of Mary. Now, Pope Pius XII summed it up quite nicely why we believe that she is the Queen of Heaven, didn't he? Yes, in his 1954 encyclical, uh, Acele Regnum, he states that the royal dignity of Mary as queen rests without doubt in her divine motherhood. From this, it's easily concluded that she is queen since she bore a son who at every moment of his conception, because of the hypostatic union, was king and lord of all things. So the question is, how in the world is Pope Pius XII getting Mary's queenship from the fact that she is mother of Jesus? <laughs> right, because when we think about a king, we think his wife is the queen. But tell That's us about right. the, the Old Testament background that would actually point to the mother as queen. This is correct. So we have actually a few hints of this role of the queen mother in Hebrew, Gebirah. And for example, in Jeremiah 13, 18, Jeremiah is uh, pronouncing judgment upon the king and his mother. And God says to Jeremiah, Say to the king and the queen mother, Hebrew Gebirah, take a lowly seat for your beautiful crown has come down from your head. Other hints to this role of the queen mother or the Gebirah is found in 2 Chronicles 15, 16 and 2 Kings 11, 1 through 4. But perhaps, Anna, the most clear example is found in 1 Kings 2, where we read about this uh, exchange or this interaction between Bathsheba and her son, King Solomon. So in verse 19, when Bathsheba comes into the presence of King Solomon, we're told that Solomon rose to meet Bathsheba, bowed down to her, had a seat brought for, for her in order that she might sit on, his, on the right of his throne. And it's interesting, Anna, to contrast that with 1 Kings 1.16 when Bathsheba comes into the presence of King David when she is wife as of the king, she bows before the king. Hmm. But in 1 Kings 2, when she's mother of the king, it's the king bowing down to her wow. and setting up a throne for her. So there we have clear evidence of this role of the queen mother. And what's interesting, Anna, when you read the narrative in 1 Kings 2, what you find is that this queen mother, Bathsheba, is seen as an intercessor because you read about the half-brother of King Solomon, Adonijah, going to Bathsheba and saying, please go and speak to the king on my behalf, for he will not refuse you anything. <laughs> so she's seen as an intercessor. And so that's sort of the Old Testament backdrop. 
Now, okay, that's the Old Testament backdrop, but why does that then point to Mary as the queen mother? Yeah, well, uh, if the queen in the Davidic kingdom was the mother of the king, and we know in the New Testament that Jesus is son of David, the whole one of the major themes in the New Testament is that Jesus is the new David, the son of David, the fulfillment of the prophecies as the son of David establishing, reestablishing, reconstituting the Davidic kingdom. But of course, Jesus elevates and perfects that kingdom in the church. But we see hints in the New Testament where Mary is emphasized as the mother of the king and thus the queen mother. For example, in Matthew's genealogy, Matthew emphasizes Jesus as son of David at the Annunciation. The angel Gabriel emphasizes Jesus as son of David, sitting on the throne of his father forever unto all generations, right? Revelation 12, John describes the woman clothed with the son, whom we know to be Mary, with the crown of 12 stores upon her head. There's queenly, queenship details, right? And she gives birth to the child to rule with an iron rod. That's a, an allusion to Psalm 2, which prophesies about the messianic king. So John describes the woman as the queen mother of the Davidic king. And, and so these are pieces of evidence in the New Testament where we see hints where Mary is emphasized as the queen mother mother of the new and restored Davidic kingdom, the church. And so then what does that say about her role in our lives as the church? Yeah, very good question. So if the old queen mother was seen as an intercessor, then it follows that the new queen mother would be seen as an intercessor. She is our intercessor, Anna. So there we have a biblical basis for appealing to Mary's intercession and her prayers. Secondly, she deserves royal honor. So we need to be uh, giving her the honor where honor is due. Honor of the mother entails honor of the king, right, of her son. Uh -huh. And so honoring Mary leads to honor of Jesus. And then, of course, she is our mother, too, because we actually see in Revelation 12, 17, after she's described as the queen mother, we're told that she has offspring, and those offspring are those who keep the commandments of Jesus. That's her spiritual children. That's you and me, Anna. Mary, Queen of Heaven, pray for us. We've been Amen. talking to Carlo Broussard. Carlo, if uh, listeners want to get more information on this, where can they find it? They can actually go to Catholic.com and read a great article by Dr. Edward Sreed on Mary's Queenship. Fantastic. Catholic.com, you can find it linked in the show notes at sunrisemorningshow.com. Carlo, thank you. Hey, thank you, Anna. God bless you. Have a great day. You do the same, Carlo. Thank you very much. And of course, you can find all of our guests linked in the show notes at sonrisemorningshow.com. And don't forget to click that subscribe button so you can get all that information linked in your inbox every day as we go on the air. And that'll do it for this special edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. Thanks so much for listening. For Matt Swaim and Paul Lockman, I'm Anna Mitchell. May God bless you and keep you and grant you his peace.